Well, this week we are back in a, a brief topical series called 2020 Clarity, where we're trying to think through the nature of our mission. You'll remember last week that we have recast our mission as making disciple-making disciples and planning disciple-making churches. This week what we want to do is we want to move forward into thinking about what we call our tri-core of discipleship. In other words, there are three spheres of of relationships here at Trinity Bible Church that you're going to hear us encourage you towards week in and week out. And so what we want to do over the next three weeks is talk about where you fit into these. Now you'll notice on the picture that's above, uh, we have these three realities, relationships that we're going to be talking about. Uh, The first is gathered worship, and then you'll notice community groups, and then after that one-to-one discipleship. And as you look at these three realities, you'll notice that where they meet, there's a little dot. And that dot is you. What we hope is, I know you're probably thinking I'm better looking than a dot, but it's, it's a metaphor, it's a picture. And it's a picture of where we would like to see you. We'd like to see you involved in all of these relationships to the glory of God. Now we know that there are lifestyle situations that sometimes make some of these difficult. In fact, there are always going to be lifestyle situations that will make these difficult. But this is the goal that we would ask you to work towards, being involved in all of these Now, last week, you'll remember that we talked about the fact that God has entrusted his church with the power of the keys of the kingdom, and that that ought to cause us to walk differently, knowing that we are those who have been entrusted with the apostolic teaching, with the teaching of the apostles. Uh, We sit under that teaching, and we revel in it. Well, this week, what we want to think about is the first element of our tri-core of discipleship, and that is gathered worships. Gathered worship makes disciples. Now this morning we're looking at this, and as we think about it, worship can be seen, I think, as somewhat of a loaded word. Uh, In fact, if you were to go on Google, like I did yesterday, and you were to type in worship, uh, you actually would find a lot of articles on what? Music. Uh, You'll read a number of articles. In fact, I read a couple that said music is worship. So as we're thinking about the nature of gathered worship, I think it's important that we really understand what the biblical answer and explanation of the nature of true worship is. Because I believe music as worship is actually, catch this, reductionistic. I think worship is much more than just music. In fact, I think it's much more than just Sunday morning when people gather together. So let me just give you, remind you of two realities about the nature of worship that lead us into an important question. Two realities that lead us to an important question. Uh, First reality is this, a reality that reminds me of a popular song from back in the day by O-Town. I don't know if y'all have listened to O-Town, but they had this really popular song that every junior higher danced to. It was called All or Nothing. You ever heard that? Uh, The song went this way. Here's just a a sampling. It says, I've had the rest of you. He's writing, of course, to his half-in girlfriend. I've had the rest of you. Now I want the best of you. I don't care if that's not fair because I want it all or nothing at all. Now the Apostle Paul says something very similar about worship in Romans 12.1. But he's speaking about the relationship of the Christian to God. This is what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. You see it? Spiritual worship is about more than a song. It's about your whole life, all that you are. That body there in 12.1 of Romans is referring to everything that makes you, you. That is God's. And what he wants is your spiritual sacrifice is you. Friend, don't miss this. God wants it all or nothing at all. And following him as a disciple means a life that is centered on Jesus Christ. He is the core of your life and all of the decisions that you make every day. Worship is not just singing or Sunday services. It is about all day, every day, what your life is about. A flourishing life is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. But here's a second reality. After tracing the meaning of worship in the Old and New Testament, in his book, Engaging with God, David Peterson says that worship is at heart an engagement with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way he alone makes possible. What he means there is that worship, spiritual worship, 
is biblical. We understand that God has spoken to his creatures about how he is to be worshipped. And we should listen really closely to what he has said about how he desires to be lifted up and exalted and lived for. So knowing the Bible doesn't promise spiritual worship. We know that from James, right? The demons know the scriptures and they what? Shudder. They don't worship. They know the Bible. Many Pharisees knew the Bible and missed Jesus, who is both the means and object of worship. But hear me, spiritual worship moves from biblene, if you're really being spiritual in your worship, to banal. That's a word that means bad, right? It is either meaningful and spiritual and biblical, or as you move to the other direction, it becomes meaningless and worthless. So if we want worthwhile worship, it needs to be grounded in the Word of God of people hearing and responding to God. That's the two realities. Now a question. If you were listening closely, you might have heard me say, all of life is about worship. Then what uniquely happens in gathered worship on Sundays? Do you see that? If all of worship is about If all of life is about worship, then what uniquely do we need gathered worship for? What is it that we're doing here? I think it's an important question. Well, the short answer is we we worship in gathered worship because it's biblical, right? That's one. I think we've got more to say in this message than that, but it's biblical. And we'll see from the Bible exactly what that means. But let me just give you an example of how this biblical reality is seen. After spending five chapters describing Christ as our greater high priest in the book of Hebrews, we get to Hebrews 10. And Hebrews 10 says, let us draw near to God. Since we have this great high priest, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. That's the second thing we can do. And then third, he says this in verses 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I wish we had a lot of time to to linger here, but catch this. You'll notice he says, we meet up to stir up. Now the word for meet together speaks of corporate worship gatherings. And Hebrews commands that they not neglect gathered worship as some have. Like in the first century, already people are starting to neglect worship. Now the word for neglect here is actually, I think, stronger than it might read in English. See, the original word behind that, it actually speaks of elsewhere, people who have abandoned God and his people. And so Hebrews says, gather more, not less, as the return of Christ gets closer and closer. Now, I don't know about your calendar, but mine says Jesus is coming back sooner today than any day before. And what that means is we need to be gathered together more, not less. We need to be more faithful, not less, in gathering together in worship. Now, our big idea this morning is this, that local churches gather weekly, here it is, to glory in the God of the gospel. And edify one another in the Spirit before being sent out to make even more disciples until Jesus returns. Local churches gather weekly to glory in the God of the gospel and edify one another in the Spirit before being sent out to make even more disciples until Jesus returns. I think it's very biblical, and we'll see this. See, we we come and see to go and tell, and then we repeat. Now, first... We're going to see what does the church do when it gathers. We're going to talk about what the church does when it gathers biblically. But before we go there, I want to pray for us. I'm going to ask God's help. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we're coming to your word, and we are looking at a lot of text, Father. A lot of scriptures that tell us about why we gather and what the purpose is and what our hope should be for this time. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would take these words, Lord, and that you would use them to encourage our hearts. Lord, only use what is biblical And what is biblical, Lord, use it to stir us up, to awaken us to the greatness of who you are and what it is that you have intended for us even being here. Lord, we want this to be a time that glorifies and magnifies your name and propels us to want to go and tell the nations. So, Lord, use this as an opportunity to stir our hearts, we pray. 
Amen. All right, first, notice, we need to ask, answer the question, what does the church do when it gathers? You know, it really is amazing when you think about the nature of who God is. He is an incomprehensible God who is infinite beyond our imaginations. And yet what we find is, is that we as his created creatures, he has spoken to us in ways that we understand. And he has told us in the Bible what he is like and how he wants his people to worship in the New Testament. If we understand that creator-creature distinction, then we are going to listen more closely to God's word. We'll understand the beauty and the glories of the reality that this God has spoken to us in ways that we understand. And specifically, about how we are to relate to him. And it kind of makes sense if he made you, that he would tell you why. And that he would tell you how it is that you are to live in the world that he has created you. And even more, if he gave his son for you, it makes sense that he would speak to you in his word about the nature of how we are to relate to him. Now at this point in redemptive history, we see that we see God in the scriptures by hearing his word. Do you get that? In the scriptures, when it talks about seeing him, so often, I mean, sometimes when Jesus is actually here, we really see him, but so often we who have not stood in the actual presence of Jesus see him through hearing until faith becomes sight. And so his word is the center of our worship as we come together. We gather around God's word. Our worship is word-centered as we observe it in the New Testament. See, God's word says that when we gather together as a people, we read the word. We preach the word. We sing about the truth of God's word. And when we pray back, we are actually even praying words that God has given us to explain how it is that we are to speak to him. And then the ordinances, we actually see the word played out in dramas that God himself has created. And we want to talk about each of those. But first, you'll, you'll notice that the Bible says that we are to be a people who read the word when we gather together. Now, it really is amazing when you think about it that God has given us his word. Paul seems to understand the beauty of the word of God and the way that we ought to understand the beauty of the word of God. In fact, uh, in First and Second Timothy, which is in the, the T section of your Bible, you know, those like New Testament T's. In First and Second Timothy, Paul is actually speaking to Timothy. And as he's speaking to him, he's telling him as his young apprentice how he's to love and serve and care for the church in Ephesus. And then you'll notice what he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, if you look there, he says in 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, did you catch that? Paul tells Timothy to give himself to gathering the church and reading the Bible as he is explaining what it says. See, worship means service to God. Service to God means obeying God's voice. Thus, reading the Bible in services is worship of God. D did you catch that? There is a real sense in which we're, you're coming on Sundays, you're thinking, man, I want to worship God, and the worship will be defined, maybe you're thinking by the, the music, or maybe by like the ordinances, but here, don't forget this, when we read God's word, it is an act of worship. We are listening to the God who has spoken to us. In fact, we are making a profound theological declaration every Sunday like this Sunday when Malachi said, let us begin the service by reading from the Word of God. What we are saying is, is that we are centering ourselves around the Word of God and we begin as a people of God by hearing from God. Now just think about this for a moment. We are saying as we begin with God's Word each Sunday officially, we are saying God's word created us. God's word took on flesh. God's word caused us to be born again to eternal life. And God's people continue to live not by bread alone, but by every word that descends from heaven, from God himself. We need that word. That word is what calls us. That word is the thing that we center ourselves around. It is that word that tells us who we are and how we are to live in light of the character of our great God. Now, what if you don't like to hear God's word, though? 
Well, there are a lot of reasons that we might not like to hear God's word. Uh, Maybe last night you stayed up a little bit too late playing Xbox. Maybe there was a good game on. Maybe you have a new baby and you're just tired for good reason, right? It can make it hard to listen if you're tired. Or, Or maybe it's because you haven't really heard the Bible read by someone who reads it like they believe it. When we read the Bible, we need to read it like we believe it. It's an act of worship. Maybe it's because you don't like the verses we read. They're not the verses you choose to read in your quiet time. They are uncomfortable verses. Verses that make you feel judged by the reader, even though it's really the written words that are making you feel judged. Maybe it's because you're a Christian who has hardened your heart towards God's word because of pride. Because of some unconfessed sin that just continues to gnaw at you. Or because of a broken relationship that you need to fix that you haven't. And all of those things have made your heart and your ears closed off to the beauty and the hope of the Word of God. Or maybe it's just E, all of the above. And then again, it could be that you are a non-Christian. Now, I I think that you need to listen close if you're a non-Christian. If you don't believe in Christ, you don't identify yourself as a believer. See, Jesus says, my sheep, hear me, my sheep hear, they hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So if, if you're a sheep of Jesus, you hear the scriptures, the word of Christ coming, and you know it, you, you can identify it. That's Christ's word, and you want to hear it, and you want to follow it, and you want to follow it even though you know you don't want to follow it, right? You feel it changing and transforming and shaping you. But if you don't sense that, if you don't hear God's word and think that it is valuable to you, it could be because you just don't believe in Jesus. See, shepherds know that when the sheep hear their voice. If you've been a shepherd, you know this. The sheep come running because they know of how good the shepherd is. They know their need for the provision that only he can provide, the protection that only he can bring. They run to the voice of the shepherd. And if the shepherd calls and the sheep don't come, it's because they're not familiar with the sweetness of his care. So don't miss this. It takes the Holy Spirit for us to taste and to see the goodness of God and to come running. So if the shepherd calls and the sheep don't come, it could be because they need the Holy Spirit to come and change and transform them from a goat to a sheep. So if you find the scriptures dull, I would say check your heart. Ask God to work in your heart to make you love the word more. If you don't like manna from heaven, maybe you're not hungry for the right thing. As Isaiah 55 says, remember, every time that the word of God goes out, in Isaiah, Isaiah 55, he says, it is doing God's work. It does not return empty. And if in that outpouring of the word of God, you find that your heart is not moved towards God, it could be because your heart is being hardened under the word of God. Church family, brothers and sisters, don't forget this. We have been entrusted with the keys of the kingdom of God. We have an otherworldly authority that is intimately connected with the right application of God's word. That's why we read typically through scriptures written both before and after Jesus comes and the Old and New Testament to show how all of God's word fits together. Because until faith becomes sight, we see and perceive the incomprehensible God through his word. And the better that we listen, the better we hear and see God and the more that we become like his son, Jesus Christ. See, the church also gathers not only to hear it read, but to hear it preached. That's another thing that we do. We, as we gather, we gather to hear the word preached. Now, Paul, again, writing to Timothy, this time in 2 Timothy, he says this in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. And look there, these verses. 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 2 still in the T section of your New Testament. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, I wish I could spend more time here, but notice the transcendent scene that Paul is picturing here. It's the scene of a a court case, and it's on the last day. 
where he is coming before Jesus as the great judge, the judge of the living and the dead, who all are going to have to give an account for their lives. And he says, Timothy, do, do you see yourself that day before the judgment seat of Jesus? And you can see Timothy saying, yeah, yeah, I see it. And Paul says, okay, Timothy, young Timothy, let me tell you this. Okay, here's your job as a pastor of Jesus' people. Are you listening? Uh-huh, I'm listening close. Preach the word. That's what your people need. Preach the word. Now, I think this language speaks to both the how and the what of preaching. How do we preach? Well, I believe John Piper does a great job in this new book. He's written, Expository Exaltation, where he is talking about preaching. And he speaks about this word for preach. And he says, it's distinct but related to teaching. It's not that they're different ideas. But he says there's something unique about preaching and the nature of the job of the preacher when he communicates. The preacher must herald the word in such a way that he senses and exults in the word that he is exposing. See, preaching is worship that ought to cause and create and stir up worship in others. Now, Piper writes this, for corporate worship, it is the visible, unified knowing, treasuring, and showing of the supreme worth and beauty of God. Isn't that good? That's what we're doing when we preach. We are, we are showing off the glories of our incomprehensible God who has revealed himself as glorious to his people. Now, two, that's how we preach. But what do we preach? We preach the word. That's the scriptures. Those God-breathed scriptures that Paul has just told Timothy about in 2 Timothy 3. Those scriptures that are God-breathed from God himself, God's very words. Those are the words that we preach to the people of God. Now, that would have spoken of, at that time, the Old Testament, and it also includes the New Testament. We preach the Bible. So, part of being a disciple is observing all that Jesus commanded, and that means the whole Bible. We need the whole Bible to become a whole disciple. Now, here, we, we preach a kind of preaching that's called expositional. It's not what we're doing here, but it's what we do most of the time. It's where we preach through whole books of the Bible. We go section by section, book by book, section by section, verse by verse. And the reason that we do that is we believe that we need to be exposed to the full counsel of God. We need to come to the text hoping to see God. We don't just cherry pick text that we want to preach or that we feel inspired by in our quiet times in that week. We go all through the counsel of God. What that means is expositional preaching, that we are preaching section by section through books of the Bible, but making the main point of the text the main point of our message. That's our goal. Now, if you've been here over the last decade, you've heard a lot of Bible. Just think about this. You've heard, and I did, this is just a rough estimation, from Genesis, Leviticus, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, you know, by the semester end, Isaiah, a bunch more prophets, Psalms, Proverbs, Matthew, Mark, Portions of Acts, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, Philemon, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Jude, and others. You've heard from roughly 27 books and portions of others. That's a lot of God's word that has been shed upon you, that has been washed upon you. But catch this, even more than that, we seek to preach like Jesus preaches. You remember what Jesus instructed us, how he gave us an example of how we use his word in Luke 24, 27? You'll remember that's where he came to these disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're talking about things related to Jesus. Jesus shows up, and Jesus begins to tell them how they should have known who he was. And in that, he stops and he says this. It says that as he speaks about the scriptures, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Old Testament, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He's preaching Jesus from the Old Testament. He's preaching Jesus as he is making the New Testament. The Bible is about Jesus. It culminates and climaxes in the person of Christ. So every Sunday when we are preaching, whoever it is that is here, we are always looking to make much of Christ. Catch this. He's the hero of your story. I am not the hero of your story. I'm not even the hero of my own story. Jesus is the hero of my story. And every person here could say that same thing if you're in Christ. And that's why week after week, 
We need to be exposed to the Word of God. And not even just the Word of God, but the Word of God that points to and exalts and helps us to understand who Jesus is. Because catch this, the more that we see Christ, the more we see what we were created to be. So we need Christ week in and week out as we come to the Word of God. God's Word culminates and climaxes in the Word, Jesus Christ Himself. I love what Hebrews 1, 1-2 says, In times past, in many ways, at many times, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. In other words, we believe Spirit-inspired, God-glorifying preaching is Christ-centered That's what gospel-centered doctrine looks like. looks like Jesus. See, we need to be reminded the Bible isn't first and foremost about us, but about God and about His Son, Jesus. You know, some of you are going to forget that life's about Jesus before you even hit the parking lot. You're going to have a dirty diaper explode, and you're going to be like, man, I forgot all about Jesus. You're going to get in a fight with your wife or, you know, some, somebody out there is going to be hurt and broken and you're going to be sad for them and, and you're going to forget about Jesus. And we as humans, week in and week out, need to regather ourselves, to recollect ourselves around the word that points to Christ. We need to remind ourselves about who we are and who he is. That's what it means to gather together around the preaching of the word of God. See, I once asked Benjamin, we were, I've told you this before, we were walking out of a service one time of a a, a church that was evangelical, and uh, you would think to be friends, and, and, and they are friends. And uh, as we were walking out, I said, Benjamin, he was at the time 10, what'd you think about the sermon? Uh, he said, well, it was about Jeremiah 2, and man, he really was excited about those goats, wasn't he? I said, yeah, he was excited about the goats in, in Jeremiah 2. I mean, I thought the fountain of living water was cool, but he was distracted by the goats. And he said, yeah, and dad, I don't remember him saying anything about Jesus. I'm just thinking, if my 10-year-old son is noticing a need for Jesus in sermons, well, that's the day that we go get ice cream, isn't it? We did. We went and got ice cream for that. Because he knows what he should be finding in preaching. He should be finding Jesus. See, Christian worship is Christ-centered, and he is our hero. We need more and more of him. But third, when we gather together, we sing God's word. We sing God's word. Colossians 3.16 provides the command for and purpose for music and gathered worship. Uh, You'll notice what Paul says there. He says there, uh, and I think it's a little ironic. Uh, If you notice the the context of Colossians, he's talking about the harmony of the body and how we should be united in Christ and all together. And then he talks about music. And usually music causes so many wars amongst Christians, right? And differences in congregations. Paul says it shouldn't be that way. He says this in Colossians 3.16, music, he says this about it, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In other words, Paul here, he's talking about singing, he's saying that the purpose of music is what? To teach It's to fill our hearts with the word of Christ so much that it dwells richly within us. That's the goal. Now, I don't think bad music helps that goal. Let me just say that out front, right? Bad music isn't the thing that you're singing after you leave the congregation, uh, that you're, you know, out at work or at play. That's not the words that come to mind. I think good music actually helps making the word of God dwell in us richly happen better. But more than that, notice that this music is for the sake of teaching and admonishing one another. When we sing, we're singing words to songs, but we're actually ministering and teaching one another as we do that. You might not be able to teach a good lesson to save your life, except for one point in the whole week. When you're singing a song that's full of rich theology, man, you're a great teacher on that day. You guys are teaching me stuff. We're teaching each other stuff when we sing to one another. And the more loud we sing, the better. I was at a wedding this week, and I was sitting right there, and I was around a group of brothers, and all of these brothers were just singing their hearts out, and I found myself just getting so excited and start up for Christ, just from hearing them sing like they believed what we were singing, and they did, and I knew they did because I knew their lives. What a beautiful thing that we can come together and stir one another up in truth, teaching one another as we sing true songs week in and week out. There is a real sense in which we teach and admonish one another when we sing. 
In fact, if you think about it, singing is the one critical activity of worship where we speak back to God and one another collectively with one voice. Something powerful about song. In fact, the emphasis of this text is on teaching others truth with thankfulness in your hearts to God about what he has done for you. That's why Malachi attempts to choose songs that we can sing together and is constantly trying to make sure that the sound of the music doesn't drown out the voices of Christians sitting next to you. We want you to hear each other. You ever been in one of those uh, services where like everybody drops the music and then people like get quiet because they're like, oh, I don't, I don't really like to sing where people hear me. Like I don't sing that well. Well, that's actually against the purpose of corporate worship. Like you're supposed to be singing and teaching one another. They need to hear you if they're going to learn from you. Does it make sense? See, I need you to sing truth to me. I need to be reminded of God's word. Nobody's excluded from that. Songs are so important. You will likely remember more songs that you sing than you do sermons. That's one thing that I found in the history of my experience with the church. That's why I delight when I'm in my car during the week. I was, it was, in fact, it was just this last week. I'm sitting in the car. My eight-year-old Jack is in the back seat. And all of a sudden, he, he doesn't know anybody's listening to him. And I hear in the back seat him singing, Look what God has done. He has redeemed us with his blood. His tone's better than mine. And then he, hmm, 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 hmm. Just singing. Why? Because that word just stuck in his heart. And, and what comes out? Well, the words to the song, the music. That's why I think we need to be as careful as the Bereans with the songs that we sing, just as careful as we are with our sermons. We want songs to connect musically so they drill good theology into our souls as we go. When you hit hard times, I want good music to lift you up, that tell you true things about God. See, here, music doesn't drive our services. Preaching drives our music. Our songs prepare us for the text that's going to be preached week in and week out. And I'm so grateful for the way that Malachi works at that. Fourth, we speak God's word back to him in prayer. We speak God's word back to him in prayer. You'll remember in Acts 2 that the Spirit comes down and the church springs up. And when it does, it's devoted to what? God's word and prayer. Well, catch what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2 about prayer. He says this, First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Here again, Christians pray. In fact, there's something off the grid about prayers, I believe, even when you write them out. Because catch this, when you're writing out prayers, you're having to actually speak back to God in ways that he has told you to and pray intelligently for things that he's told you to pray for. That is actually much more difficult than you realize. There are times where we are told that we need the Spirit to help us because our words don't quite pray right, right? Praise God that the Spirit helps like clean up our prayers when we don't know how to pray exactly right to the Father. But more and more as we pray, hopefully we are learning that heavenly language of how we speak with God. See, every week one of our elders is praying for us. And he's praying for the, the things God's Word has told us we ought to pray for with confidence. Confidence that we have not because we ask not. So we ask. Confidence that God is able to do more than we can think or imagine because God is able but also knowing that we are begging God to help show us how it is that we are to be faithful in the life that he has given us. We're also modeling as elders how we pray, how to pray in our pastoral prayer. I have a number of stories about this, but one of my favorites is I once had a young Christian come up to me and, and say, thank you so much for the pastoral prayers. I was like, well, you're, you're welcome. I don't have a lot of people thank me for that particularly, but I thank you. I'm, I'm glad you like it. She said, no, no, you don't understand. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I learned to pray just by listening to the pastoral prayers. Week after week, I heard the things that you prayed for. I mean, you, you prayed for the church. You praised God. You confessed sins. You talked about Jesus and, and, and how great he was and all that stuff. And then, you know, you talk about the government, and you're praying for all these things that are very built. And that's how I learned what to pray for and how to pray. And brothers and sisters, we are praying as an act of worship, but it also teaches us how we are to pray. You can learn, from pray, learn about prayer just from listening to your elders. Now think about this. Sometimes our prayers are kind of long. Y'all notice that? Like 35 minutes sometimes. 
Some of you are thinking, man, that's a long time, three to five minutes. But is it? Is it long to speak back to God for three to five minutes? I just wonder sometimes, does that say something about how we're praying during the week? That three to five minutes of speaking to God seems so long. That we can't stop for three to five minutes as a people of God to speak to him. The glorious God who created us out of nothing. Who has spoken to us in his scriptures. Who has sent his son to die for us. Is it too much? Is it a little thing for his people to speak back to him for three to five minutes about the things he has called us to? I mean, if you think about it in that light, maybe it's too short. Maybe the reason that we think that our prayers are too long and so much longer than other churches is because we as a culture don't pray enough. Could it maybe be something more about us as individuals than the prayers themselves? I hope that we would be broken and desire to pray more, lifting up God, speaking to Him, asking things of Him, really trusting that our prayers matter. Trusting that we really do believe that we have not because we ask not, so we are asking and expecting God to answer the prayers that we are praying. The glory of prayer is that we have access to God by the blood of Jesus and his high priestly work. It is a glorious thing that we are able to pray to the God who made us, who saved us. Not only is prayer worship, but it also takes note that it is teaching us. Love that. Not only do disciples pray, we need to move on. Fifth, we see the word in the ordinances when we gather. Now, we don't have much time. Time is running short. But the ordinances are baptism and communion. And you can look those up in our churchology series online and and look at those to understand them better. But we know that God himself has created two dramas for himself where we see the gospel being played out. We see baptism, which he commands in Matthew 28. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us about communion. Both of these are picturing the gospel before us. This last week, Francis Chan did some backtracking after saying that communion stood at the center of worship, uh, really until the Reformation, and the Reformation messed that up by putting a pulpit in the center in the Word of God. Now, he's apologized. He's like, I'm sorry, I didn't study before I spoke. Uh, Because the reality is that the Word of God has always been at the center of the gathering of of God's people until somebody moved it out and put put the sacraments of communion in its place. And what the Reformation understood was not that they were changing something that had not been done before, but actually reforming, putting back, restoring something that had been broken in the past. The Word of God needed to always be at the center of God's people. It doesn't have to be a pulpit, but it needs to be God's words that people are centered around. Same was true for the Apostle Paul, Cyprian, Ambrose, Augustine, etc. All of them saw the Word of God as being central to the worship of God's people in their lives. It is the Word that gives meaning to our communion and baptism. I heard a, a, a great talk on this just last week. You can have communion in an unfaithful church, but if you're a faithful church, you're going to have communion. We need the Word to explain to us what it is that we are doing. And these symbols, these these pictures, they remind us of the power of the gospel and our future hope. So that's what the church does when she gathers. Those things, those five things. They, They read the Word, they preach the Word, sing the Word, they pray the Word, and they see the Word. But why do we gather? Why do we gather? I want to give you five quick reasons that we gather First, because the Bible says so. We already saw that. But I think we have more incentive. Second, so that we make it to the end. So that we make it to the end. I believe that you need other Christians to make it to the last day when Jesus shows up. Or when you come before Christ in that scene that is drawn in 1 Timothy 4, but also in Hebrews 10. Now, you'll remember in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, he says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, some Jewish Christians, it seems, in this point in Hebrews, had returned to Jewish practices because they got tired of waiting for that day of the Lord. And it looks like they stopped meeting up for stirring up, and then they fell away. So don't miss this. You need to be stirred up. Others need need you to, to stir them up. You know, when uh, G and I, we were on our honeymoon, uh, we went to this, this kayaking tour to see bioluminescence in St. Croix. There was this 
this place where you could go at night. You, you go out, you travel out, and they have these little microorganisms that you, you stir up and they light up. It's really amazing. Uh, super funny. We, we had kayaks, though, and they were run by pedals and a, uh, they had a little rudder. They didn't have, you didn't have, like, you know, the oar that you would, like, pull yourself and steer with and that kind of thing. So it was really just your feet and this little oar that you were pulling beside yourself. And so they had to give you a net if you wanted to participate in the stirring up. If you didn't have a net, you couldn't participate. In fact, there was one guy who, um, like, had to change boats last second, and he didn't get a net. And the whole trip, he was right next to us screaming out, oh, man, I wish I had me a net. Why didn't I get a net? Oh, this is so disappointing. Boy, y'all look like y'all are having fun with your nets. And uh, we just, finally, G was like, hey, would you like to borrow my net? Oh, no, I could. Well, okay, I'll take your net. So we got the net, and uh, he started swishing around a little bit. He was like, whoa, it's like magic. Are you seeing this? I mean, it's lighting up everywhere. The water's glowing. And the more that you would stir it up, the more that it would just start to, to give off this brilliant light. It looked electric in the night. And I think that's kind of the picture that we find here. You know, Hebrews is saying, you need other Christians to stir you up so you light up for the gospel. You weren't made just to live in isolation. You can't stir yourself up. You need somebody else to stir you up. You need other believers. You've been given a body. In fact, if you read 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, he talks about all of these spiritual gifts that have been given to the body. What is the purpose for? For building up the church. For causing her to shine with the glory of God. So maybe this morning, the reason that you don't feel stirred up is because you haven't been getting stirred up. You need somebody to come in. You need to meet with God's people. You need to do it week in, week out. So they learn how to stir you up better. So we don't gather around our preferences. We gather around Jesus. And if we're going to make it to that last day, being iridescent for the glory of God and effulgent for his glory, then we need to be together. Third, we need to help one another mature. That's why we gather together, to mature. We saturate ourselves with the word of God so that we can become mature. See, maturity is about good doctrine leading to a good life that glorifies God. It's not just about head knowledge. It's not just about good life. It's about good doctrine leading to good life. Both of those need to come together. Colossians 1.29 says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The goal is maturity. And that maturity comes from a gathering of people around God's word. We want to graduate from milk to meat. Just like we said last week, it's fine for an infant to be nursing. It is really weird and wrong for a 20-year-old to be nursing. Fourth, displaying God's glory to the universe. Jesus says, he says in Ephesians 3.10, that Jesus created the church, God created the church in Christ so that even the rulers and authorities in heavenly places would look down with spellbound wonder at what God is doing. So when we gather, there is a real sense in which we are doing something glorious that even rulers and authorities in heavenly places, chapter 6 of Ephesians means that's at least demons. I think it's also other heavenly beings looking upon this in spellbound wonder. Why? God did not save. He did not redeem fallen angels who were made a little higher than humanity. But he did save these humans. They are dumbfounded that God would do this. And yet he did it for the glory of his name. So we gather to display God's glory to the universe. But not only that, we gather for the purpose of making, for evangelism. John 13, 34 to 35 says, Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to love one another as I have loved you, and by this love, all people will know that you are my, my disciples. And here's what's interesting. In that picture, they are loving one another in the same place at the same time enough that outsiders are looking in, and as they are looking in, they're saying there's something different about this collective group than everything outside. There is something, a, a church, they're, they're members of it, and it's in such a way that they are loving one another distinct from everything that's out here. And they are saying, that distinct love tells me they follow Jesus. 
Do you get that? Outsiders looking in saying that love testifies to the nature of who Jesus is. Now what that tells me is Jesus understood his church as evangelistic in its gathering and its scattering. When they come together, there is something evangelistic and powerful about the nature of God's people gathering together, stirring one another up around the word that culminates and climaxes in Jesus Christ. So it's evangelistic. Do you know that the local church gathering, us as a people, we are God's chief evangelistic strategy this side of Jesus coming back. And then finally, making disciples of the nations. Making disciples of the nations. So I can hear some of you saying, what about non-Christians? You just talked about it, but what about Christians who don't come to church? Well, catch this. We scatter better when we gather well. Did you hear that? You will scatter better when you gather well. When you come to corporate gatherings, when you are faithful to come and meet with the people of God, you are becoming a better evangelist. There's a unique worship that happens in our gathering that propels us to worship better in our scattering. Evangelism is an act of worship. See, worshiping together each week ought to revive us, stir us up, and launch us back out into another week of living a life of worship, right? All of life is worship. So corporate worship is stirring us towards a better all of life worship. Our hope is that the gospel on display week in and week out excites you to go and tell others about the greatness of Jesus. It prepares your heart to be ready when the repo man knocks on your door, needing to hear the gospel, right? It reminds you of the eternal significance of sharing Christ with your kids. Not only that, we hope that it causes you not just to go and tell, but also to want to encourage people to come back and see. You see, you go and tell, but it's like, come back and see. I want you to see the local church and what the gospel does in real time. And one of my favorite jobs as a pastor is to sit down for membership interviews with new members where I get to hear about people how they came to Christ, and what drew them to the church. I love people who come in, and they, they tell me in these interviews about this is the thing that attracted me. And here's the thing that's transitioned in the last 10 years. First five years, we wanted somebody to preach the Bible, so we were grateful for that, biblical preaching. Last five years, the body is so sweet. The people are so loving. Those are the things that we hear more often than not. What about the preaching? Yes, yeah, it's good, but the people. The people are amazing. We love the people. And more and more, people want to invite friends, family, and neighbors to come and see what God is doing. This is what Jesus says should be happening. We gather to glorify God and edify one another. And when we get stirred up together, we ought to glow with the warmth and the light of the gospel that is alien to this world and that draws them. We not only worship We invite others to come and worship with us. We declare together in the gospel what Ray Ortland says. And I love this message that we have for a lost and dying world. Here's my message. One, I'm an idiot. True story. Bible says it's all over the place. Two, my future is incredibly bright. And third, I want you to know that anyone can get on this deal. If I can, you can. That's the message of the gospel. It's a little bit more in it than that. If you want to talk about it later and you're non-Christian, let me tease that out for you about Jesus and what he did on the cross. But in the end, it's a hopeful message for all. And local churches are Jesus' evangelistic strategy. Going and telling works hand in hand with coming and seeing. So let me be clear. You don't need to wait until people get to church to share the gospel. If you're thinking like, I'm going to go out and make friends. I'm going to bring them back to the church. They'll hear the gospel, get saved. Our hope is that we are equipping you so that they get saved at work and they come here and tell us about it. But if you're sharing Christ with someone outside of the church, they should be able to come and hear it again from the pulpit and then hopefully again from the pews when they talk to our members and they ask them about whether or not they know Christ and they get an opportunity to share the gospel with them. See, we share Jesus together. Evangelism is a community project. I mean, isn't that what Jim Hughes is doing with Hope for Addictions? Isn't that what Barb Him and others have been doing through Impacting Hearts? Isn't that what Stephen has been doing with College and Career? Brittany's been doing with our children. Uh, we find Kevin doing that with youth. In fact, he's off at youth camp doing that right now. And what about Reuben with pretty much anybody that'll listen to him? I mean, there's so many of you that are sharing Christ in ways that we haven't even heard of yet. And we're excited to hear about. But God calls us to come together so that we can go out and scatter 
and share the gospel better. Last point is a quick one about application. How can you gather better? You know, maybe, maybe you need to gather better. I think we do a pretty good job. We can always have room for improvement. So let me give you some ways to gather better. First, read the scripture before you come. Like, know what to expect. Read the scripture that, uh, maybe not next sermon or the next, but the next after that when we get back, you know, into the expositional series. Read the scripture before you come. And be ready for it. Pray for the service. Pray before you come. Pray for all of the elements that are going to be in the service. Pray for clarity of the sermon, for power, conviction, that Christ is exalted, that, that Christians that come are transformed more into the image of Jesus, that if there are those who do not know Christ to come, that they would be saved. Pray for those things. Pray expectantly that you have not because you ask not. Pray for yourself. Pray for opportunities to share Christ. Pray for a heart that will be soft to God's word, not hard to it. Pray for those things. Pray that God would give you opportunities to minister to and serve and stir up others. That you wouldn't miss those. And, and by the way, show up early so that you can stir up people before and after the services. You know, sometimes it's hard to, to stir up if you don't wake up. You know what I'm saying? You've got to wake up on time to come and be here and be in the presence of people so that you can actually stir them up towards love and good work. So show up early. Commit yourself to the church in membership. Be committed to one another. Be known and know others. Invite your friends and family. And know that when you invite them, you might have to explain what's going on and why we do it. And well, I don't know. Well, now you do. Now you know why we do what we do. And finally, look for ways that you can serve and make this gathering feel like the love of Jesus. You know, this place should be joyful and hopeful and helpful, and it should glow with the warmth of the gospel. And if you want Trinity to glow, don't neglect her. Stir her up. Let's pray.